Hello and welcome to the Midweeks with Pastor Rob. That is me. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it and I hope that you are, are blessed. I want to talk about three things today. I want to continue talking about Romans 9 through 11. We had a long pause there and uh, for good reason as uh, my wife and I were completing an international adoption and uh, boy that's a lot of work including the traveling and jet lag is the worst but we're back and I'm getting back on to this and I want to complete this section of scripture one of the deepest most difficult some ways most controversial uh, passages in scripture and what I've been saying is that Romans 9 through 11 Paul writes this uh, section here for a purpose, a theological purpose, to help his readers understand what God is doing in the world, um, and to also boost their confidence in God's word, in his faithfulness to his word, and then also to humble them and bring them to a place where they will worship and adore God as uh, tiny creatures, and not accuse and judge him as arrogant creatures. And so, am I just making this up? No, here are my verses. Number one, the theological point, the theological mission to help them understand what's going on in their lifetime. He says this, this is Romans eleven twenty five. lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Mystery meaning not something nobody understands, but something that people did not understand, but now God has revealed his hidden wisdom and his hidden counsel. I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That's the theological message of these chapters, that the church in Rome, made up of Jews and Gentiles together, would see that God is ruling over this stage of human history, that a partial hardening, meaning um, a time where their hearts will not respond in faith to the preaching of Jesus Christ, has come upon Israel while the Gentiles come in. Okay, so he's saying this is the situation, this is the big situation I'm trying to teach you about. But he's also trying to keep them from believing that either God's promises fail or that God's word has failed. And that's why Romans 9 starts off with that declaration where he says, it is not as though the word of God had failed or has failed. That's Romans 9, 6. So whatever you see going on with Israel right now, it is not that God's word has failed or his promise has failed. There's something else going on. So don't lose your confidence in the promises of God, especially the gospel or the written word of God. And he wants to bring the Romans to a place of humble worship and not pride and judgment. And so he says, in verse 33 of chapter 11, he just launches into the worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. So inscrutable meaning beyond our capacity to judge. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? And who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so he summarizes these chapters with this declaration of just the fact that um, our response has to be to come to God and say, 
you are smarter than us, wiser than us, stronger than us. You alone know what's going on and are ruling over everything. And all we can do is humble ourselves and worship you. So I'm saying that these are the three main things that are going on here. Knowledge of the partial hardening, uh, admitting the faithfulness of God's word and the trustworthiness of it and coming to a place of humble worship. Okay, so if memory served me right, we are actually in chapter 11, verse 11. And the last time I spoke about this, um, we, I was talking about the elect and how God had um, given them a spirit of stupor. Sorry, the, these are the hardened. They, they've got a spirit of stupor and ears that don't hear. And David had prayed that um, eyes would be darkened so they can't see. And just talking about that there is such a thing as an elect. And so from God's perspective in the world, there is such a thing as a chosen people. And that chosenness in this scripture um, is expressed by people believing the message of Jesus Christ and getting saved. And that is uh, predominantly happening among the Gentiles at this time, but also partially happening among Israel. So that's the elect. It's a mixture of Gentiles and Israelites or Jews, uh, first century Jews. And that's the Roman church. He's explained, how come you guys are like this? Well, this is what's going on. And at this point, um, the, the, the rest being hardened is... Uh, the Israel that has not obtained what it was seeking. So that's what we were talking about. And Paul is emphasizing at this point God's sovereignty um, over what's going on here. Sovereignty meaning his right to rule as God and king over any situation. It's my own definition here, but I just want you to know what I mean by that. His right to rule, to express his control over any situation and to make things happen the way that he wants. Um, and, and notice how he has two large quotations in verses um, 8 and 9 and 10. He's quoting scripture, okay, because he's trying to boost people's confidence in scripture. God's in control. He's fulfilling his word. He's not losing his word. His word is not failing. He's fil- fulfill- fulfilling his words. Excuse me there. He's fulfilling his word. So, so trust in the gospel the same way God is fulfilling his word that he prophesied, um, e- even though it looks messy right now. You can trust the gospel because the same God who predicted these events also says, if you believe in my son, Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the grave and that he is the Lord. And by implication, your Lord, you say, he is my Lord, my God, um, you will be saved. So the same way that these events were prophesied and God sticks to his word, you can trust the gospel because God will stick to his word. There's not going to be anybody who like genuinely believes in Jesus. And at the end of time, God says, no, I'm going to break my word just because I don't like you. Never going to happen. Are there going to be some people who kind of deceived themselves and worshiped themselves, but kind of threw the name of Jesus around in their life? Yeah, I think so. Uh, There is such a thing as a Judas phenomenon. There is a Judas who can walk with Jesus and see him and listen to him and kind of go out and pray in people's names, but in his heart of hearts, worshiping himself, worshiping something else. Um, And I I hope and pray that's nobody who hears this, including me. And that's where we need the call to be faithful and to watch our hearts and to, to be seeking to genuinely walk in faith. But God's word is true. He will never reject anybody who comes to his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says in John, I will not turn away anybody who comes to me because God has promised if you come to Jesus in faith, in genuine faith, 
you believe he's raised from the dead, you believe that he's the Lord, you will be saved and you will experience that salvation in life through adoption, through redemption, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, through God's presence, um, through his sustaining hand, his grace, uh, love through the church. Um, the church is a mess, but so is everything. But, the, but a healthy church is a lot better than a lot of things. Um, however, God will be faithful to his word. Notice him quoting scripture. Let's start with verse 11. Let me read this. This is what Paul says. We'll see how far we get. So I ask, did they, referring to Israel, uh, those who were hardened, um, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruit is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nursing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud by fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even if they, sorry, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what, if they were cut off by what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their old olive tree, their own olive tree? So let's call it quits for there. Okay. So what's going on? Um, I think Paul wants to address a question here, and in particular, you can tell he's talking specifically to the Gentiles, and wanting to cut the feet of pride out from under them right away, okay? Um, just so you know, uh, people like pride. I do. Probably you do too. Um, if you just went throughout the world asking the question, is the source of people doing that pride? A lot of the time it would be. And so Paul sees that because of his teachings, um, many human hearts especially the Gentile hearts, will become proud and arrogant and lifted up against the Israelites. And so he first asks, did they stumble so as to fall? And so what I think Paul is saying there, he's saying, is this hardening so thorough that they can never recover? Stumble so as to fall, like stumble in such a way where you hit your head and you just lie there because you're dead. No, he's saying, no, they're not. They haven't fallen forever. They haven't stumbled so that they can't get back up. And so Paul says to them, instead... This um, stumbling is on purpose. It's in order to, for the gospel to come to the Gentiles. And what Paul's going to say is God's plan is for there to be a major incoming of the Israelite people or the Jewish people. And when that happens, it's really going to change things. It means the time of the Gentiles is going to end and, and 
Um, and then depending on your eschatology, is Jesus going to return for a thousand years or is he going to return and that's the end? Or is there just going to be a long period of really great kingdom um, living? And then Jesus returns to a highly redeemed world. Okay, those are the kind of three major branches of eschatology, but I don't want to go there. What's going on? Paul says to them, actually, this stumbling um, is not something that Gentiles should get proud about. Instead, they should just be grateful that the gospel came to them during this stumbling and see that the salvation that comes to the Gentiles is supposed to make Israelites jealous. They're supposed to look at the favor of the God of Abraham on the lives of undeserving Gentiles and say, I want that favor. I want that blessing. I want that salvation. And to come to um, the God-man, the son of David, the Jew, raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, come to him to get the fulfillment of the promises. So to get jealous. And so Paul says, I do my best to make Israelites jealous so that they will want it too. And then he wants to rebuke the, um, the, the Gentiles. And he uses this olive branch metaphor. And so um, obviously they had some, some silver cultural, silver culturey uh, back then. Uh, they knew how to take care of trees. And so the idea being, you know, that you can take a branch and graft it in out of, out of a tree, in a tr- into a tree, or you can cut off a branch from a tree and graft it into another one. I think uh, someone was telling me there's this, you can buy trees now where they actually have like five different kinds of uh, fruit growing on one tree. So you, you take a really healthy root, a really healthy trunk that does well in a certain climate, and then you can attach to it branches from another tree where maybe the, the tree's roots wouldn't do so well in that kind of soil, but you want that kind of fruit or something like that. And so he's saying here that um, as I interpret this picture, there is a healthy root. Uh, the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the promises of the patriarch, patriarchs and the promises to David that culminated in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the son of Abraham and the son of David and the son of God, who died for sin and rose from the grave and the king of Israel and the king of the world. This is the true root and trunk. And he says this trunk is supposed to have kind of natural olive branches in it, meaning the people of God, Israel, the Jews. Um, but at that time in the first century, these unbelieving branches were broken off and instead believing Gentile branches, which are like a wild olive tree, not this one cultivated root, but just branches kind of brought from somewhere else are now grafted in. And he's saying, don't get proud. If you're grafted into the root, don't get proud. You didn't make the root. You aren't the root. You're grafted in by grace because of your faith in Jesus. So be humble and don't look over at the branches that are broken off and say, I'm better than you. I'm more deserving than you. God loves me more than you. Anything like that. Instead, tremble and just and, and learn the lesson. Um, unbelief breaks you off from the root of salvation. And then he says as well, if God is, was able to graft you in, though you don't belong here, you know, Gentile believers, non-Jews, hear that. You you don't actually belong, belong here. You belong here because of Jesus. You belong here because you're chosen. You belong here because of faith. But 
You're not like a physical seed of Abraham. So just remember that. So that's the kindness of God. But just remember the severity of God is that you can be broken off by unbelief. And so don't persist in unbelief, especially the kind of unbelief that turns you just like a arrogant, know-it-all, better-than-other-people kind of thing. And so here's this warning to the Gentiles in the midst of grace, in the midst of God's sovereignty. Don't get proud. God's plan is to graft back in these olive branches. God's plan is that when um, the Jewish people en masse believe in Christ, it's going to be like a resurrection from the dead. That's what God's working towards. So again, these passages have something for everyone to get humbled and to be humbled about. I like how Paul moves in like one chapter from God's sovereignty over election and the hardening of hearts to, hey, you guys, you need to not, uh, not... not not believe. You need to stay in your humble faith in, in Christ. Like, it's up to you. You can get broken off too. What? So he blends these things together, and I think we're not supposed to fight it. I think we're supposed to work with it. How I understand it is, you know, from God's perspective, he's got it all worked out. And from the human perspective, we have a lot of responsibilities, and, and those perspectives um, are both real. All right, let's move on a little bit. I, uh, I said I wanted to talk about uh, economics a little bit and loving the poor through economics and also a lawyer. All right. So I was reading this article the other day, and it was about Manitoba uh, energy, and essentially that because of how the spending has gone with making this new hydroelectric plant, rates are going to go up quite a bit. And one of the suggestions from whoever was announcing this was that Manitoba should use the carbon tax to alleviate some of the um, pressure that this is going to cause to lower-income people or poorer people. Um, and, And for me... There, here's a lesson. If you care about the poor, you should care about cheap energy. If you care about the poor, you should care about cheap energy. You know, I'm, I'm for um, automobiles being not stinking so much. Uh, I, I'm, I'm for um, creating energy through cleaner means. I, I think it's fine. I think it's good. And, you know, I've had the, the luxury in life to live in two provinces where they create a lot of their energy by hydroelectric power. Okay, in BC they do that, in Manitoba they do it, and it is probably the cleanest way to do it. There is environmental cost, you know, you have to make a lake and a dam and rivers can get damaged. Uh, But as far as like air quality, these things are the best way to create energy that I know of. Now, someone's probably a better expert than than me. Um, uh, And and so there's kind of like two ways to make energy, right? You can either harness the environment some way, a hydroelectric dam, which uses the power of falling water to turn turbines, um, solar power uh, panels, uh, wind turbines. Um, and, and in order to move green, people are moving towards more of those kinds of creating power. Now, if you don't have access to a hydroelectric dam, you don't have access to a consistent source of power because um, solar panels only work during the day and wind turbines only work during the windy times and it's a bit of a toss-up whether or not these things even pay for themselves over their lifetime like if you spend 10 million dollars make putting up a wind turbine does it actually pay for itself by creating 10 million dollars worth of energy plus whatever other people are needing before it breaks down or needs repair i'm not even sure that that works Um, they can feel like a bit of a luxury energy creation item for government people to work towards in order to show that they're for green power but this is the thing they're really expensive 
And so when you go towards making more expensive energy um, sources, they, th you have to pay for it, okay? The people have to pay for it. Or when you put a tax on gasoline or something like that, call it a carbon tax or whatever it is, you add another 10 cents to it, um, and you're going to use it somewhere else, people have to pay for it. Now, who are the least able to absorb 10% increases on energy? Right. The people at the lower end of the income, the people who are kind of living paycheck to pay paycheck and just making the budget. If you are a, a, a government worker, and bless them, I, I love the government people that I know. They're, I know a lot of great people. But if you are making seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars, a hundred thousand, if you're a successful business person, if you're um, in the advocating class and you're making a lot of money, um, you think to yourself, you know, 10 cents a liter more doesn't hurt people. But if you're just a single mom and you're just keeping your car on the road and somebody decides that now it's going to cost you 50 bucks a month more just for what you were doing before, you really feel that. And that's why this person was suggesting, well, we need to make a fund to help people on the lower end. So this just makes it all more complicated, more complicated, more complicated, more complicated. What we actually need is people who value cheap energy. Because we need energy. We need energy to heat our homes. We need energy to move things. Like everything at the grocery store went through trucks. So if you make travel more expensive because energy goes up, you make food more expensive because it take, costs more to get it there. Um, the less expensive energy is, the less expensive everything is, and that benefits the poor or the people on the lower income first. And so artificially infl inflating energy costs... Um, impacts the poor first. And so that's something to think about. It's it's something that's not often talked about, but it's something to think about. When gas prices go up 10 cents, it's the people who are who are just dr driving old beaters because that's all they can afford. They're the ones hit the first. Okay? So we need to think about that. We we really need to think about that. If you, if you care about the poor as in a nation, it's important to think about how making energy more expensive impacts them first. All right. And the last thing I want to do is talk about lawyers. Okay. So when I was last week, when I was speaking, I was, I was talking about this news article about uh, the Miss America pageant, getting rid of the swimsuit issue and wanting to concentrate more on character and accomplishments. And I floated this idea. It just cultural things reminding me of first timothy and his commands to the church where he says number one men should lift up holy hands and not be in quarreling and number two women shouldn't be dressing just to impress but instead should clothe themselves in good works and it sounded like number one the me too movement and number two this kind of miss america pageant thing uh, calling for character and then i wondered if the next thing would come to and in the passage in first timothy the calling is for uh, men to take the lead in leadership and teaching in the church to be the elders and to rule well and to specifically take up that role. And I was wondering, I just said, I wonder if something's coming where, where there's going to be a movement where people um, are just going to say, uh, what we want is godly dads. What we want is well-behaved men doing their job to make things, sure things are peaceful and that people are getting supported and built up. I wondered that. And, and so I was listening to this uh, interview with Canada's probably famous, most famous lawyer. Um, 
definitely most famous female lawyer, and she was the woman who defended uh, Gomeshi in the Gomeshi trial. And he was accused of, of a lot of bad things, which it was just not great, but she defended him and defended him successfully and kind of got him off. And um, people were wondering, like, how do you defend someone who, who, who's done this stuff or whatever? And, and so that was part of the interview. But part of the interview as well was about, you know, supporting women in law as a career. And so I thought this was really interesting. And her response, as I understood it, uh, was twofold. Number one was kind of the thing that you would expect, which would be, I encourage women to be more forthright about wanting promotions. So she was saying that um, from her experience, she sees that women are often in law for about five or seven years, and then they quit because they feel like they're not going to get any more promotion exposure or something like that. And so she's hearing this from women and what's her response to it. And number one, the second thing she said was, I encourage women to be more forthright, that they want the promotions, that they want the, the, um, the support that they want, they want it. But the first thing she said was really interesting to me. She said, um, the men really need to buy into this, that women are there to succeed and get promoted and to, to achieve in their careers. That you need men who are willing to promote, willing to give them opportunities, willing to want to see them succeed and to give them whatever they need to do that or to work with them in. And for me, that's exactly what I was talking about. Here is someone who's saying, um, we want the men at the top of the lawyer profession to value our success and to do their job, which is to use their power and authority to elevate uh, women. And so I just thought, yeah, that's exactly it. What you want is a godly dads <laughs> leading lawyers' offices. And again, you know, I, so for me, I, I don't know, think she'd ever use those terms and she'd probably disagree with me. And because she's a lawyer, she'd probably outlawyer me pretty quick. But from my sense, that's what I'm talking about. This call that's going to say to guys, guys, look, um, be, be, men of good character and want to see other people succeed, like rule well for the building up of other people. Use your authority to build up others. That's what we need from you. And, uh, and I just think that there, here you hear an, a secular echo of exactly what Paul was talking about in 1 Timothy, where he says, uh, oh, I want the men to be elders and I want them to be godly elders. The, the church needs dads. And I heard somebody Maybe they didn't mean to say it, but I heard somebody saying, and lawyers' offices need godly dads, or else it's not going to work. So that's just me, just listening to what's going on out there. Anyhow, I hope you're blessed. Have a great day. May the Lord bless you, and uh, we'll see you next week.